0: Well, good morning. Good to be with you. My heart is just overflowing with joy in being here and seeing you and talking with you again. It's been a long time, but thank you so much for your prayers while, we, while Emma and I were in Ukraine, along with our team from Grace Community Church. Thank you also for your prayers and your remembrance as we're in California as I continue on in seminary. Let's hear now from God this morning via his word, and let's pray before we go on. Our great God and Savior, there is no one like you. Lord, your word is essential. It is our food. We need it more than the bread of this world. God, help us to understand this word. Help me to be able to explain it well, accurately, clearly. And God, I pray that you would apply it to each person so that they would see that this is not just a word to people. It is your word to each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would bless this time now and that you would grow us. In Jesus' name, amen. Please open your Bibles to James chapter 4, verse 1. I'm going to be looking at verses 1 to 10 today. That's page 1209, by the way, if you're using your few Bibles. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 10, but for the moment, I just want to start with the first sentence in verse 1. Look at James chapter 4, verse 1. There's a question. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Think about this question for yourself and for your life right now. Why is it that you sometimes or even often find yourself angry, quarreling, and in conflict with other people? What is the source of your anger? Why do you get so upset? What causes the conflicts between you and your spouse, between you and your other family members, or even between you and the other believers in this church? I can think of some typical answers to this question. It's the other person's fault. He's just so unreasonable. Or she's just so selfish. He makes me mad. Or, a different line of answering, answering, it's just the way I am. I have a short temper. Or, I'm Irish. You know what they say about the Irish. Or, I have a mental illness. Or, we might say, alternatively, it's due to my upbringing. My parents were too strict with me. I was abused when I was little. Or, my parents weren't strict enough. They just gave me free reign. I, everything came too easily to me, and so that's the way I am now. Or perhaps we say, it's, it's due to my circumstances. I get upset because, well, I'm so tired. It's been a long day. Money's tight. And life is just too stressful right now. We might make these answers. But do you notice what two assumptions are common to each of these replies as to why we get upset and why we quarrel? Two main ideas. It's not my fault. And there's nothing I can do about it. What I really need is for my circumstances to change and for other people to change. This is the way the world thinks. And is it any wonder then that there's so much conflict in our world? So many angry words exchanged, so much violence, so much divorce, so much murder, so much war. War. According to the world's way of thinking, there's no real hope for peace or for lasting peace because none of us can really help ourselves. But what about Christians? What about God's people? What about God's children? Should we be making the same excuses? What does the Bible say is the true source of our angry quarrels and our conflicts with one another? Now, the things I've mentioned They can and do play a role in producing conflict. Other people may indeed provoke us. Our flesh may be particularly prone to anger. Our upbringing may have had a poor influence on us. And we indeed might be in difficult circumstances right now. But none of these, according to God, are the true source of our quarrels. So what is? Well, let's hear from God. Let's hear from God on this critical topic via his apostle James, James the brother of Jesus. We want to give full attention to this word so that we might not only know what is the true source of our quarrels, but so that we also can know what we can and must do about it, that we might live in peace, and that we might be a greater witness of Christ in this world so filled with conflict. Now we're looking at James 4 verses 1 to 10, and a a quick note of background on this book. This is a very early New Testament letter. James is giving various exhortations to scattered and persecuted Jewish believers. But besides encouraging these Christians to persevere in their circumstances, James also warns and confronts the believers not to excuse sin in the midst of their difficulties. A particular concern to James is relations between the believers in the church. In chapter 3, in the section of text before our passage, James rebukes the Christians for using their tongues for evil against one another and for their manifest, their demonstrated jealousy and selfish ambition, which is being masked by some as some kind of maturity. It's in the context of these concerns in James that we read this section of teaching in James 4 verses 1 to 10, and I want to read that whole section with you now. So James 4, 1 to 10. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is it not, is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. And do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. But he gives a greater grace. Therefore it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be miserable, and mourn, and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning, and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will Exalt you. Like a doctor who truly understands the nature of a dangerous illness, the Spirit of God reveals in this passage what is the true source, nature, and treatment for our frequent quarrels. This disease is not physical, mental, or psychological. It is a spiritual disease, one that that we have done to ourselves and one with which we must carefully deal with so that it does not do more damage to ourselves or to others. We can break down James' teaching into three main points. Three steps to reveal and heal our conflicts. Three steps to reveal and heal our conflicts. Step one, in verses one to four, understand the true source. Step 2 in verses 5 to 6, heed the true authority. And step 3, verses 7 to 10, embrace the true solution. Now we'll find out more about each one of those things and we'll identify them more specifically as we now work our way through the text and look at each verse. But the first point, the first step that James wants us to follow is to understand the true source of our quarrels. And what is that source? The answer is idolatry. If you want to truly reveal and heal your conflicts with one another, you must understand that the source of your conflicts is not truly external. It is internal. Quarrels come from the heart's own idolatry. Look again at verse 1. Chapter 4, verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? Now these two questions from James are clearly rhetorical. James doesn't have to find out what are the particular sources of every and each quarrel for all these various Christians because he knows that the source of every quarrel is basically the same. The source of all quarrel is, as James says, your pleasures that wage war in your members. Now notice the military terms at play here. In that first question, we have quarrels and conflicts. But more literally, those words are wars and battles, or wars and fights. And this military theme continues into the second question. There's something waging war in your members. So James is essentially asking, you know why you keep seeing war and battles among your people and among your relationships? Well, isn't it obvious It's because you have something waging war within you, within your body parts, within your very heart. There's no peace without because there's no peace within. But what's waging war within? James says it is your pleasures. Now your pleasures are all the things that you really like, that you really want, things that you find delight in. So James is saying, it's your wants and your desires that are actually waging war in your soul. They are seeking to dominate you and demand that you seek after them. And this is just like what James says in chapter 1, verses 14 to 15. In regard to the origin of sin, James says this in James 1, 14 to 15. But each one, each person, is tempted when he is carried away and enticed by his own lust, that is, his own strong desire. Then, when lust has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And when sin is accomplished, it brings forth death. So, our sin, even our quarrels, it comes from the desires within our hearts. Now, consider how this works in real life. You've got something you really want a pleasure. Something you feel is just so essential to your happiness, your wholeness, your security. Maybe it's something abstract, like love, respect, comfort. Or maybe it's something more concrete, like money, sex, or even a particular food. And you're pursuing this thing, and you're looking forward to obtaining it. But then, someone gets in the way. Someone gets in the way of you and your expected pleasure you know you ought to be loving toward this person. You know the teaching of Christ. But meanwhile, that pleasure in your heart begins to assault you. And it demands that you fight for that pleasure. Punish those who get in the way. And you become overtaken by your pleasure and you become angry. You then essentially communicate to that other person, how dare you get in the way of me and my pleasure? How dare you threaten it? How dare you take it away from me? Don't you know I need this, that I deserve this? Now you are going to pay. And thus, you quarrel. And you know what all this is, really? This is idolatry. Your pleasure becomes your God. And you worship that pleasure instead of the true God. All sin at its root is idolatry. And this is true for our quarrels as well. In every quarrel, in every angry conflict, one side or the other is engaged in idolatry. And it's often both sides. One side has a certain desire. The other side has a competing desire. And both sides are not willing to let go of their desires, for Christ's sake. And so they instead go to war. Now, this process I've just described for you is the exact same as what James next describes in our text. Because look at verse 2. He says, You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. Now, as I said, the word lust here refers to any strong desire. It's not necessarily a sexual desire. But James says you have these strong desires, these idolatrous desires, and when they're not fulfilled... You sin. But notice the sins that James says they commit. He says, the result of your not obtaining your desire is you commit murder. Wait a second. You mean Christians back then were murdering each other because of their lusts? Well, it's possible. Probably not literally the case. Though even Christians can commit murder. And certainly those who claim to be Christians but are not, they can commit murder. But even if these are not literal murders, which I don't think they are, nonetheless, the use of this term by James is significant. And it should remind you of the teaching of Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5. Because what does Jesus say there? Jesus says those who get angry at others and those who use insulting words with others are as guilty as those who commit murder. Why? How can those things be equated? It's because the heart intent is the same. When when you get angry at someone, you're essentially saying in your heart, I want you to suffer for getting in my way. I even want you to die. Make no mistake, at the heart of every murder is an idolatrous lust. And in the blossom of every angry desire lurks the seed of murder. After all, this is war as far as the idolatrous heart is concerned. And war requires killing. I will fight to the death for my pleasure, says the idolatrous heart. Unfulfilled lust leads even to killing. Unfulfilled envy leads even to waging battles and waging war. But should... Christians be enslaved to heart idols in this way? Of course not. Not only is idolatry revolting, unacceptable to God and those who would claim to be followers of Christ, but God has also promised perfect provision to each one of his own and pleasures unending with him in heaven. Why would a Christian seek after idols? Consider what James says at the end of verse 2. He says, you do not have because you do not ask. You foolish Christians, James says. You're ready to fight, quarrel, and kill to get what you think you need and what you want when the whole time you could have just asked God. After all, James already said in James chapter 1, verse 5, James 1, 5, but if any of you lacks wisdom, Let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. God responds to the prayers of his people. He knows their needs. He's so happy to provide according to his own perfect wisdom for his children. Don't go to war with one another. Go to God in prayer. Now someone will say, well, I did. I prayed to God and nothing happened. I didn't get what I asked for. Prayer doesn't work. God obviously doesn't know my needs. He doesn't care about my needs. Or he's just not able to do what it takes to provide for my needs. But James anticipates this reply. And we see it in verse 3. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. So that you may spend it on your pleasures. You know why God didn't give you what you asked in prayer? Because he knew that doing so would only encourage you in your idolatry. Because you basically were approaching God in this way. Hey, God, can you give me this thing that I want more than you? Because that'd be really great. Thanks. Brothers and sisters, God is a good God. He's a good father. He's not going to spoil his kids. If you belong to God, he will not give you what is not good for you. And giving you more means to pursue your idol apart from him, that is definitely not good for you. Your idol is in fact a great affront to God. And will you impugn his character and kindness for not indulging your idol and granting your wicked prayer? So yes, asking God instead of fighting with one another about our needs is the right way. But even in asking God, you cannot come with idols in your heart. Now, I don't think we realize just how serious anger and quarreling is to God. But what we've seen so far should help us to understand. Because if God is God and angry quarreling is idolatry and what does that make you, in essence, if you are a quarreler? James tells us in verse 4. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You know what your anger and your quarreling really is to God? It's spiritual adultery. When you fight with others, when you berate them, when you seek to hurt them with your words or even with your fists, you are manifesting spiritual harlotry. You show forth a love for someone else or something else more than God. And will God tolerate such adultery? And over what do we quarrel? Is it not the passing things of the world? And in doing such, we manifest that our love is for the world and for the things of the world, and we want to be friends with the world and the idolatrous world system. But this is unthinkable in a follower of Christ. James draws his audience back to gospel basics in verse 4. Don't you know, don't you remember that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? You can't do both of these things. You can't love the world and love God at the same time. You can't be the friend of the world and God's friend too. And this again should remind us of the Sermon on the Mount. Because what did Jesus say? Matthew 6, 24. No one can be a slave to two competing masters. Kind of paraphrase it a little bit, but that's the idea. No one can be a slave to two competing masters. So dear Christian, when did the world and its passing pleasures become so important to you again? Have you forgotten your first repentance to follow Christ, when you turned your back on the things of the world and said along with the hymn writer, "Let good and kindreds go, Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also. You left the army of the world, the worldly rebels, to join the army of God. Why have you deserted to join the rebels again? Because beyond adultery, that's what quarreling is. A quarrelsome heart is not only a declaration of spiritual adultery, it is a declaration of war against God. Look at what James says in the last part of verse 4. Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. So Calvary... Let these sobering words sink into your ears. What do you love? What are your pleasures? And what do you delight most of all? Are your highest loves the things of the world? If your heart is captured by the world and its treasures, and if such leads you to quarrel with others, then know that you have made yourself an enemy of God. God is a jealous God who will not endure any competition for worship. Only he is worthy of honor and glory, not you and not the things of the world. So brothers and sisters, consider this very sobering first point from James. Understand that the true source of your conflicts is actually idolatry. So think about your recent quarrels recent conflicts, arguments, fights that you've had. What pleasures were at the root? What idols were you and or the other person clinging to in those moments? Do you see how that pleasure, that idol, caused you not only to turn against your fellow, but even to turn against God? This is a serious thing. Now, someone might say, actually, I'm pretty sure that in my recent quarrel, I was being righteous. I was righteously angry. Oh, really? Well, did your righteous anger look like Jesus' righteous anger? Because Jesus' righteous anger had a very noticeable quality. It led to good and loving actions rather than sinful and hurtful actions. Is that what your anger led to? Let's not deceive ourselves. James 1.20 The anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Now someone may yet say, I don't believe this. I'm pretty sure that my conflicts are not stemming from idolatry. It's indeed some other source. I am not truly at fault. But James is not going to let us get away from this first point. And he's going to give us a second point to help us even further reveal and heal our conflicts. And our second point Verses 5 to 6 is that if we're going to be healed, we need to heed the true authority. Heed the true authority. Now, people might listen to all sorts of authorities when it comes to assessing their actions and their motivations, authorities like feelings, even philosophies and psychological theories. But James points us back to the only true authority for understanding our quarrels and even our heart, and that's Scripture. What I'm presenting, you to you, presenting to you this morning, brothers and sisters, is not my opinion. It's not even a man's opinion. I'm giving you God's declaration via his word. And if you would love and serve God, then you must heed it. Now we see this point, not only the fact that James' is writing inspired scripture, and that we have it for us today, but notice his appeal in verses 5 and 6. We'll start with verse 5. Or do you think that the scripture speaks to no purpose? He jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us. James points to the Old Testament scriptures to back up what he's just said. But immediately, this statement in verse 5 presents us with a couple of puzzles. First puzzle is how exactly should we translate this verse? Your Bible might have a little note. There are two ways. Two main ways we could take this verse. Because the Greek verb that's used for desires here could have as subject either he, meaning God, or the spirit. So the sentence could read, as it does in the New American Standard, he jealously desires the spirit, and spirit could be uppercase or lowercase, he jealously desires the spirit which he has made to dwell in us, or the sentence could read closer to what it does in the the King James Version. Something like, the spirit that he caused to dwell in us lusts to envy. So in other words, who's jealous here? Is it God or is it our corrupt spirits? That's one puzzle. And the second puzzle is, no Old Testament scripture says exactly either one of these things. What verse are you quoting, James? We can't seem to find it. So what do we do with these puzzles? Well, Let's start with the second one. The answer to the second puzzle is most likely that James is summarizing the teaching of the Old Testament rather than quoting a specific passage. And indeed, either sense of that statement in verse 5 finds ready support in the Old Testament. For example, when it comes to God's jealousy for the soul's worship, we see in the Torah, Exodus 34, verse 14, You shall not worship any other god, for Yahweh, whose name is Jealous, is a jealous God. Or Deuteronomy 4.24, for Yahweh, your God, is the consuming fire, a jealous God, or even Nahum 1-2. A jealous and avenging God is Yahweh. Yahweh is avenging and wrathful. Yahweh takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. But on the flip side, if we take the other sense of this statement in verse 5, we see many Old Testament depictions of the human heart's incessant lust and idolatry. Consider Israel. Despite a special covenant, God's own presence among them, miraculous provisions and deliverances, especially prepared land, and many other blessings, what basically is the record of Israel's history? It's just them continually going after and turning back towards idols. So much so that the metaphor that God uses to describe Israel in Ezekiel 16 is of a brazen and ungrateful adulteress who can never be satisfied no matter how many lovers she obtains for herself. That's the human heart. Even in the Torah, God describes Israel as being uncircumcised in heart. And if that's true of Israel, who had all these privileges and blessings, what about the rest of the world? You remember what God said about humanity before the flood? Genesis 6, 5. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And even after the flood, man's heart had not changed. Genesis 11, God has to disperse man's rebellious attempt at Babel. Understandably, Jeremiah says of the human heart in Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Who can understand it? So either sense of James 4, 5 would fit and be supported by the Old Testament. But which sense is James' actual intention? Going back to the first puzzle, how should we translate this verse? Well, a key clue is the beginning of verse 6, where it says, but he gives a greater grace. Now, if God is the jealous one in verse 5, then the beginning of verse 6 is kind of awkward. God gives a greater grace than himself? God gives a greater grace than his own jealousy? The other translation, I think, makes better sense. If our spirits are indeed characteristically prone to lust, jealousy, idolatry, we might ask, what hope is there for us? We've become enemies of God, we're adulteresses, we'll be destroyed. But, verse 6, God gives a greater grace. God is able to overcome our own wicked hearts and rescue us, really, from ourselves. I favor this second translation, then. But either way, the overall sense of the passage is not greatly affected. So, in sum, what is James saying here in the beginning, or uh, saying in verse 5? In response to the notion that James is going too far and identifying quarreling as the manifestation of an idolatrous heart, James points to the Old Testament where again and again the spirit of man, which belongs to God, was given by God, should worship God, nonetheless does not, but incessantly lusts, envies, and seeks idols. It was well said by the reformer John Calvin that man's heart is an idol factory. It just keeps churning them out. It should come as no surprise to us, then, to hear that our heart's idolatry is being exposed in a new area. Our quarrels. But James doesn't just point to the Old Testament to affirm the evil idolatry of man's hearts. He also points to hope, hope in Christ, because God's mercy is also put on display in the Old Testament. Look at verse 6 now. James says, But he that's God gives a greater grace. Therefore, it says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. There is grace there is undeserved favor available even to spiritual adulteresses. People who have made themselves enemies of God through their idolatry. And what is this grace? It is the abundant salvation and cleansing that comes by repentance and faith in God's Savior, the substitute, the Messiah, Jesus, God's Son. For all those who will turn to God for mercy, In light of their sin, they will find it when they embrace the Son. But this requires humility. James recalls that fundamental principle referred to many times in the Old Testament, but seems to be citing Proverbs 3.34 here, that principle of humility and pride. For those who refuse to admit their deep heart wickedness before God and refuse to turn to Jesus, they will not receive any grace will not receive any mercy. And for those who in pride suppose that they can do enough good works to make up for all their evil, they also will receive no mercy from God. But for those who, in complete humility, throw themselves before God's mercy and embrace Jesus Christ and all Jesus taught and demonstrated himself to be, those ones will find grace, even grace greater than all their sin. James here, then, in verses 1 to 4, is not giving some radical new teaching. This identification of quarreling with idolatry fits right in with the rest of the scriptures. What the scriptures have to say about the human heart, about pride, and about God's judgment. But this teaching also fits in with everything the Old Testament declares about the abundant and available mercy of God toward all those who will look to him in humble faith. What James declares has the authority of both Old and New Testament Scripture. And it's an authority greater than any other supposed authority on earth. But are you willing to recognize that? Are you willing to heed the very voice of God? Do you see that your unrepentant, quarreling idolatry puts you into a long line of scoffers who do not experience God's grace? But do you also see that your anger, your lusting after pleasures, can find grace, no matter how long you've been labeled hot-tempered or have been idolatrous? So, so far we've seen that in order to reveal and heal our conflicts, we must both understand that the true source of our quarrels is actually idolatry, and we must heed the true authority on quarrels and the human heart, which is scripture. But if we do these first two things, then we ought to come to the same conclusion that James does in our text. And that's our third point. We must embrace the true solution. What is the solution to our our idolatrous hearts and our incessant quarrels? It is repentance. The solution to our quarrels, the solution to our conflicts, is not medication, it's not therapy, it's not changed circumstances, it's not even simply getting others to acquiesce to our way. Such solutions may improve our symptoms they fail to deal with the root cause. If we want to be truly healed, then we must repent. But what what is repentance? What does this repentance look like? Well, James describes it for us starting in verse 7. Look at the first part. He says, Submit, therefore, to God. This is the necessary conclusion. If God has a grace greater than all our sin, then we must submit to God. You may have Heard something about this term, submit. The Greek verb is used frequently as a military term, meaning to line oneself up under someone else. And that's what we are to do to God. We are to line up under him, come under his authority. No longer serve your pleasures, no longer follow their orders, dethrone them, desert the rebel army, and line up again under God. This is repentance. This is a change of heart resulting in a change in actions. Now, this command to submit is an overarching command over these final four verses. What follows in the text are four basically couplets, parallel couplets, illustrating what this submission and repentance looks like. So for this last point from James, I'm going to give us four sub-points to to summarize what James says and how he describes what repentance is, what true su- repentance and submission is. And our 1st subpoint, our first couplet, straddles part of verse 7 and part of verse 8. Look at the end of verse 7. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What does necessary repentance and submission to God consist? First of all, reversed stances. Notice that the structure of these two statements in verse 7 and verse 8 is reminiscent of Hebrew poetic parallelism. This makes sense. James is Jewish. He has that background. He seems to be employing that same kind of device here. We have a contrast set between what repentance, the stance that repentant believers have towards the devil and the stance they have toward God. On the one hand, believers are to withdraw from the devil must no longer walk with the devil, but must take their stand against the devil. On the other hand, the believer must no longer run away from God, but actually draw close to God. Now, it's interesting that the devil is only now mentioned in the text. Up to now, all of the impetus that we've heard toward evil has been coming from man's own heart. And indeed, as I've heard Mike Riccardi say recently, one of his uh, recent talks, Even if the devil and his demons never tempted us at all, we have enough wickedness in our fallen nature to bring us away to even the worst iniquities. In a sense, we don't even need the devil's help. But we are reminded here, because James brings up the devil, that the evil one and his forces do have a hand in drawing our hearts away toward idolatry and toward quarreling. But what must we do now if we are truly repentant and submitting to God? We are to resist the devil. We are to set ourselves up for battle against the devil. We are to stand firm against him. Hold the line as we have faith in God. And as we do this, notice the promise that James reports to us. He says, if you resist the devil, Satan will flee from you. Oh, Satan will test you. He'll probe your defenses. He might even engage you for a prolonged period of time. But don't give an inch. Hold until relieved, and eventually, the devil will break and flee. Now, the devil is truly powerful, and he has an ally in our own flesh. But God is greater, and his grace is greater, so that we can even resist the devil. So on the one hand, we are set up a new stance, a reverse stance against the devil and fight against him until he flees. We're not under his power we've been given a greater grace. but on the other hand, we are to open our stance toward God and we are to seek him. Now, you know, to draw close to God was a very dangerous choice in the Old Testament because God, even as we read, is a consuming fire. He's holy. You can't get close to this holy God if you yourself are unholy. If you try, his bright holiness will have to destroy you. And yet God is the source of all goodness, all beauty, all salvation. If only we could get close to him. look at what's promised here by James. He says, if you draw close to God, you seek to get near to God, it's not that God's holiness will smite you. Instead, God will actually draw near to you also. He's telling us, you can have fellowship with God. You can approach God's face. You can experience his blessing. In fact, you are commanded to do so and promise that God will respond. Now, why is this? Is it because of our own merit that we've earned something with God? Well, no, it's because of that greater grace that we've received in Christ. So in other words, no longer make God your enemy, draw close to him as friend and father so that you might enjoy him and God will grant your request. God will grant you his joy and his fellowship. So this is the first way we see repentance illustrated. We're changing our stance towards the evil one. We're changing our stance toward God because we have new promises. A second illustration of this repentance comes in the couplet at the end of verse 8 where James says, Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your your hearts, you double-minded. We could describe this element of repentance as thorough cleansing. Notice that these verses say we are to cleanse both our hands and our hearts. And together, these terms really represent a Totality. The whole person. The hands are often representative in scripture of external acts, whereas the heart describes the inner person. The heart is the place where the thoughts and the desires and the emotions, they are all generated. And James says, both must be purified. All of you is to be purified. It is to be a thorough cleansing. Repent of sin both externally and internally. It can't just be one. You are to repent, you are to trust Christ to make you clean once and for all, both inside and outside, and then walk in new holiness, not just on the outside, but even on the inside, in your thought life, what you believe, what you desire. This true is what true repentance and submission comprises before God. And notice also the terms sinner and double-minded. They are also said in parallel, and really they're two ways of describing the same concept. To be a sinner is to be double-minded. But what does it mean to be double-minded? We get a clue back in James chapter 1. James 1, verses 6 to 8. You can flip there real briefly if you like. James 1, verses 6 to 8, we see this term first used by James in this letter. Verse 6, James 1, 6, talking about prayer and speaking to God in prayer. But he must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That man ought not to expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Who is the double-minded man? The man who cannot quite believe God. He prays to God, but then he acts like God's not going to answer his prayers. This man is... Not able to successfully stand against the evil one's temptations or even his heart's own lust because as soon as his flesh or Satan suggests you might not be able to trust God, this man abandons the cause and goes back to serving his pleasures. Now, interestingly, James says that the double-minded man needs purification of heart, not instruction of his intellect. You see, the double-minded man does not suffer from a lack of information. Not that, oh, I just need to learn more. No, he suffers from a lack of sanctification. He still believes the pleasures of his heart, even though they are not worth trusting. He believes that those pleasures are worth serving, they'll fulfill him, and he somehow thinks that he can serve those things and God at the same time. But God says, via his apostle James, your repentance, if you were to be truly submissive to God and repent it, it must include a turning away from this unbelief and double-mindedness. Stop believing what your idols tell you and believe the word of God. Stop vacillating between two sources of authority. God says this, but my feelings say that. Or God says this, but the opinion of the world says that. Stop vacillating. Have faith in God. Unmask your idolatrous pleasures for what they are. They are frauds, unworthy of your service, unworthy of the praise that only belongs to God. True repentance indeed consists of a thorough cleansing both inside and out. A third element of necessary repentance is given in the couplet of verse 9. Notice what it says there. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. This third element of true repentance is sincere sorrow. And notice how emphatic James is here. Five times in these two lines, he tells us that we should express sorrow. But why? Is this some kind of penance? Is this like some sort of ritual i got to go through? No, this is the logical result of someone who finally understands what his quarreling heart truly is before God. My brothers and sisters, are we not guilty of underestimating the seriousness of our conflicts in God's eyes? Ah, it's no big deal. You know, we fought a little bit, but come on, let's get back to fun. Let's get back to life's pleasures. Let's laugh. Let's have joy. Let's be merry. All the while we are in essence, according to James, according to God's spirit, we are committing murder. We are committing adultery, and we are committing spiritual adultery. Brethren, let's see our sin and ourselves for what we really are before God. And let us weep. Weep for how seriously and senselessly you have betrayed your Lord and turned against your brethren, God's children. Mourn for how you have dishonored the name of Christ, your Savior. Stop being so happy go lucky and realize your great crime. Let the magnitude of your sin and betrayal of God drive you to contrition and let your contrition drive you to repentance. This repentance, this contrition causing you to forsake your old way and draw near to God and new faith. You know what God promises to the tr- truly contrite. Psalm fifty-seven, seventeen. Sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Now, James is not commanding us to be morose for the rest of our lives. There are many other scriptures that say Christians are characterized by joy. But friends, brothers, sisters, sorrow is the expected response when someone realizes just what his sins are before God. This is another necessary element of our true repentance and submission before God. And a fourth and final element appears in verse 10. Look at verse 10. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord, and he will exalt you. I'm calling this last element humble expectation. With this final command, James refers us back to that Old Testament principle he cites in verse 6. If God gives grace to the humble, what must we do? We must humble ourselves. And this makes sense with the command to submit, right? You can only submit if you humble yourself. You can only bring yourself under another person's authority, truly, if you've humbled yourself. And it makes sense what we re- once we've realized what we've done, once we've become sorrowful. We cannot come to God holding our heads up high or asking begrudgedly, okay, God, I'm sorry, please pardon me. No, we come instead abased before the Lord like that repentant tax collector beating our breast and saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner, the sinner of sinners. Please be merciful to me. That's the way we ought to come. But notice something wonderful and perhaps unexpected appears with this last command in verse 10. Humble yourself before the Lord and what? He will exalt you. But that's not what I deserve, you say. I deserve to be banished to some corner, never exalted, never made great, never honored, never blessed. And that's true. But do you know who God is? Yes, you need to know what your sin is. But do you know who God is? God is a God full of abundant loving kindness. Overwhelming wrath for his enemies, to be sure. We can't ignore that. But for his friends, for his children, amazing grace. When you humble yourself before God and repent, he will restore you even to the place of honor in his household. He will do for you as he did for the prodigal. As it were, he will put a new cloak on you, a ring on your finger. He'll kill the fattened calf. He'll put on a feast and he'll declare you his son, his daughter now why would he do that is he trying to make much of us no there's nothing in us that's worthy of honor he's making much of himself his glorious self he's putting on, his, his, he's putting on display to us and to all the universe the greatness of his glorious love so when we come to God in repentance we do not have to wonder whether God will accept us will do more than that. He will exalt us to show forth his own glory. So with all this is not quarreling over the passing things of the world the most senseless thing. If God will exalt you when you seek his face in humble repentance, why clutch the empty idols of the world? Don't forget what God says about his Messiah and those who belong to, to his Messiah in Psalm 1611. You will make known to me the path of life, and your presence is fullness of joy, and in your right hand there are pleasures forever. The expectation of God's undeserved exaltation is a necessary element to spur us to humble repentance. So here we come to the end of this section and the end of our text. So let's review James' argument. That we have conflicts in our lives is a plain fact. But God's Apostle James gives us three steps by which we must reveal and heal these quarrels. Number one, we must understand the true source of our quarrels it's idolatry. Number two, we must heed the true authority on our quarrels, it's scripture number three, we are to embrace the true solution for our quarrels. It's repentance. And we saw how that repentance was illustrated to us in four ways. It's reverse stances towards Satan and God. It's a thorough cleansing of our hearts and actions. It's sincere sorrow for our great offense to God. And it's a humble expectation of God's provision and exaltation. So brothers and sisters, will you obey the word of God? Will you listen to how God is speaking to you today? From James, if you are a Christian, will you confess that your angry conflicts are indeed the result of idolatry? Will you therefore seek to unmask and cast away the idols of your heart? Will you patiently and in love help one another to get to the root of your conflicts, exposing the idolatrous pleasures that each of us so often blindly and foolishly cherish?" Will you acknowledge just how deeply you have betrayed and offended your saving God? Will you be grieved enough over your sin to thoroughly repent and to seek reconciliation with others, trusting that if you will humble yourself before God and before men now, God will exalt you in the end? Now, if you have not yet trusted Christ, you have not yet submitted to Christ as your Lord and Savior, then you must hear the great warning of this passage. Believers, true believers, may fall into quarreling idolatry and spiritual adultery for a time, but for you who do not really know God, this describes your constant state. You may put up a good front, you may be moral by the world's standards, but God knows your heart. Outside of Christ, you do not love and serve Him. You have not submitted to Him. In pride, you still serve yourself. You refuse to give God His rightful place. You still worship idols, even if they are the unseen idols of your heart. He has shown you patience, undeserved mercy thus far in your life. But there's no guarantee he will do so any longer. And in your heart, you know the words of this passage are true. That's why you continually have these quarrels and conflicts in your life. So you also must repent. You must line yourself up under God. And you can do this today. Heed the imperatives of this passage. Take hold of the promises. Draw near to God, and he guarantees he will draw near to you. No matter what you've done, you're not beyond God's greater grace. God can and will free you from your slavery to your desires and your slavery to the devil if you will repent, if you will believe. So give up your old thoughts, your old way believe the good news about Jesus. God sent his son to take on human flesh, to live a perfect life, to die an innocent death, to suffer God's punishment for sin on the cross for all of those who believe in Jesus. And God caused Jesus to rise again so that everyone who trusts in Jesus as Lord and Savior will never suffer God's judgment, but will instead See God's face forever. Enjoy God forever. So I urge you, be rescued from God's wrath and from your own diseased heart today. Now, our hearts are indeed wicked, prone to idolatry and quarrels, but God's grace is greater. May God grant us repentance that we might no longer be like the people of the world, so overtaken by war within, manifesting in wars without. May we instead be characterized by the peace of God and a testimony to our raging world. If you have questions about what I've shared with you today, please come talk to me afterwards or come talk with one of the elders or deacons. Let's close in prayer. Our God... We have indeed underestimated the seriousness of our sin. Even our quarrels seem like no big deal, just like everybody else. But you call it out, God. You say, that's idolatry. That's adultery. That's making ourselves into enemies of you. Oh, God, forgive us for this sin. Forgive us for so easily turning away from you. But, God, we repent Lord, let us no longer walk in this way. God, we do not want to go in this path anymore. Forgive us for our failures, but we trust God because we belong to Christ, that we are secure. No judgment will ever come upon us. We have been clothed in the very righteousness of Jesus. So we know that nothing will ever separate us from you. Nevertheless, God, we want to be good testimonies of you And we want to experience your blessing. Grant us peace, God. Grant us the casting away of these idols. Grant us the discernment, both for ourselves and for one another, so that we can identify these idols that cause our conflicts, these pleasures that we cling to, God, so we can get rid of them and enjoy your way. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.